Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Dabuti podcast. I'm Giordano Durante. Today I'm joined by the writer Humbert Hernandez. Humbert spent his career as a teacher and since his retirement in 2002 has dedicated his time to writing poems and short stories. In 2015, Humbert published Conscript or Convict, a book about his campaign against military conscription, a campaign that resulted in his imprisonment. His latest work is a mammoth history of local drama, A Time Remembered, a book which focuses on Cecil Gomez and his drama group. Humbert, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Could you tell me about your recent publication, uh, A Time Remembered? A Time Remembered covers 65 years of theatrical work um, done by mainly Cecil Gomez, Leslie Summit and myself as directors. And a group that started in 1956, but over the years, obviously, people have left, people have died, other people have joined, and we've changed names a few times, but it's always the same core, the same group. And it started off as a biography of Cecil Gomez. Uh, It was really my tribute to an outstanding um, man in the arts. Uh, But I very quickly realised that I was covering so much so much work in the theatre, so many productions, that it didn't seem right or fair. So I opened it out to the biography of our drama group as well. And of course it covers over 200 productions, full length, one actors, poetry recitals. Um, And uh, there we are. That's what I've uh, tried to achieve. Something that strikes me, Hamad, is a sheer dedication that went behind, um, you know, all this, you know, the, the rehearsals, uh, the putting on the play itself, preparing the sets, the posters, I mean, everything that you document in your book. These activities took up, obviously, just all your spare time in those days. Um, how was that possible then? And do you see the same dedication now? Like, Do you see people with enough spare time and enough drive to spend so many long evenings preparing for them? No, I, not in the theatre, anyway. I started when I was 15, and now 75. And... Um, in 1962, well, in 1960, really, Leslie Summit formed St. Joseph's Drama Group, to which I belonged. And you asked me why were we so dedicated as youngsters when young people don't normally dedicate themselves to that sort of thing. Well, because there was very little to do in Gibraltar 60, 50, 60 years ago. For young people, there was nothing. And in any case, at weekends, it practically became a ghost town. Everybody... Uh, rushed over the border to go to Spain. So we, who had stayed behind, uh, made sure that we had something to do, and doing plays and things like that kept us occupied. From there, we graduated when I came back uh, in 1967. Uh, We joined forces with Group 56. That was already uh, an established group, but many of its uh, principal actors had left Gibraltar or married. So uh, it made sense that they would absorb uh, young talent that was in St. Joseph's. We were about 10 or 12 years younger than they were. So we joined forces, and since then we haven't looked back. Yes, it has been a life of dedication, because I remember leaving school at quarter past four when we finished then, and going straight into Macintosh Hall, or straight into Inter's Hall, to paint sets, to knock the set up together, to rehearse, to do everything. And there we would stay till practically midnight. Wow, yeah. Well, in the same way, I suppose, that some people dedicate their lives to football. We did it with a theatre. 
Um, moving on to some of your some of your other works, you've also released several volumes of short stories, including most recently the Historias de Libertad. Yes. Uh, tell us a bit more about this collection and specifically Semana de Sorpresas, your the story you're going to read both as an extract and then in full for our bonus episode. Right. These are stories that really were going round my mind for years and years. But as a teacher, I never had um, the, the, the time also bringing up a young family. I didn't have the time, really, to all the place where I a comfortable home because I lived in a one-room apartment for years. Um, so I, there was little privacy and bringing up a family with uh, obligations in my teaching. It was impossible. So when I retired in 2002, that's when I got down to writing. And I came up with all these stories which are based on truth. Many people ask me, are they autobiographical? No, they're not. Because I deal in some stories with people who murder, people who steal, people who are disloyal, people who suffer from unrequited love, people who suffer from loneliness in their old age, etc. And I haven't suffered all those things. It's a question of empathy, isn't it? Putting yourself in somebody mm -hmm. else's shoes. And having done so much amateur drama where you hide behind a mask and try to live somebody's part, somebody else's part, um, I thought I could do this. I came up with, first of all, a volume called El Alcor Dionista in 2014. And then about five or six years later, I came up with these four volumes, which cover about 43 stories, all based on our patio life in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, I haven't come any, any further, really, probably in the 1970s, I don't know. Um, but I anchor myself in that period because it's the period I know best and where more, all my... Um, my childhood memories and my adolescent memories are, mm -hmm. yeah. And some of them are, are very transgressive um, because my language is often very raw and they ask me why. Well, it's because I lived, I used to live in a very working class environment in Lynch's Lane and later in Calpey Road, Willis's Road, up in the upper town, and the people that surrounded me, the neighbours, etc., were all very working class, very down-to-earth, very earthy language. Um, and that is what I heard, and that is what I reproduce. And as I said, some of them are very transgressive, like the story we're going to cover today, um, because they deal with a, an adolescent sexual awakening. You know, it's a time when people experiment in different directions, and... Uh, but nobody speaks about it. We live in a society where you have to be politically correct mm -hmm. and socially nice to other people. And I'm afraid I wasn't born to be like that. <laughs> and yet the, the story you're, you're going to read later, um, even though you say obviously it's not strictly speaking autobiographical, when I read it, I could recognize things that related to my experience as a oh, teenager. Yes. Oh, yes. Not the exact detail, obviously, but things like being curious about your own body, oh, yes. um, you know, taking girls to the cinema, the first yeah. sort of, you know, uh, amorous explorations, if we could exactly. call them that. And, and a lot of your work is very focused on, on the physical, on the everyday. Um, it's very grounded and, and concrete. Why do, you, why do you take that approach? Because I find some of it quite poetical, some of the writing as well. Like some, of you, some of the things that you notice, but also very grounded, like the little uh, uh, sayings that you've picked up and the comparisons that you've picked up. And you know, it's very humorous as well. Why, why are we taking that approach? Um, well, humour is part of some of my stories when I want to make them a bit more palatable, 
right? Um, why are they grounded in such uh, physical detail? Because generally I find locally, I'm not speaking of writers in general in the rest of the world, but generally locally people try to sanit produce sanitized writing, right? And I try to produce what comes out of me, really, what I feel is the correct thing. I mean, why should we shun all these physical functions? I remember the, I produced one story which is, uh, was about a chap who went to Catlam Bay during his summer vacation and when he got there he was bursting to go to the toilet and, do, uh, and have a crap. And of course he found that the, toilet, the public toilets were closed because salt water had been cut off and it was cut off for the whole of the village so he had nowhere to go. And he was afraid of going into the water and swimming out. He wasn't a good swimmer. So he had to think of a way of having a crap somewhere in a nook and cranny of Catlam Bay for which he had to suffer the consequences. But again, uh, I mean, it's, these are things that happen. These are things that have happened to all of us, really. Who hasn't been out and felt a tremendous need to go to the toilet and found himself grounded? I mean, impossible, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, these are the subjects that are fit for poems, for stories. They're, they're worth celebrating in a way, you know, that physicality and these absurd <laughs> situations we get, 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 get ourselves into. Um, so speaking about the, the taboos covered in your work, do you think they still shock the establishment here in Gibraltar? You know, how has your work been received in what's... I think traditionally quite a morally conservative yes. society. The work has been shocked, has, has shocked uh, people in the establishment. They don't speak about it. This is their way of dealing with it. You know? And last year, when I had uh, that program, they offered me that program, an audience with Hamid and Nandis, I read two extracts and they were very raw. And the, the culture people were sort of throwing their hands in the air behind the cameras in despair, you know, and afterwards we talked about it. And I said, well, if you don't read my work, then you don't know what I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. If you had read it, possibly you would not have invited me. But that's not my fault, that's yours, yeah. really. Uh, I find most people, 90% of people in Gibraltar don't read. They don't read local authors, they may read other things. Mm -hmm. But for some reason they think that we're just... Uh, I don't know, yeah. a little sideline there not worth bothering with. It, it would be very, very puzzling to see why that would shock someone who's got, you know, some sort of acquaintance with um, Martin Amis, Will Self, uh, you know, yes. the whole host of Celine. Exactly. Uh, you know, all these transgressive writers who... With the Burroughs yeah. and company. Exactly, yeah. I mean, a you know, whole tradition there of, of really exposing the raw side of, yeah. of humanity. Now, moving on to not so much the topic of your stories, but the language. Um, you know, your stories are in Spanish, or like Español Andalú, sí. uh, and also Llanito, bits right. here and there. Um, is that the only possible linguistic vehicle for your stories? Like, for example, Semana de Sorpresas that you're going to read. If I were to read that story in English, I don't think it would have half the effects that it has. No. It would lose its, its no. force. No? So You'd need a very able translator to translate it into English slang uh, yeah. and English idioms. Um, but it, I think it would lose some of the humour, wouldn't it? Of it would, course, it would be, of course. Yeah, I think it would, it would be almost vulgar in a way, which your story isn't. Well, the thing is that um, a lot of it is grounded in this type of humour which we use in the, the southern side mm. of the peninsula. I think if these stories are read, for example, by people from the north, they may not find them that funny, because it's a type of humour that is used in Andalusia. Yeah. You know, and we're part of that cultural, linguistic... Um, milieu, 
Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. And I think, yes, you're right, it would lose a great deal uh, if uh, they were in English. I can't conceive a story set in the 1950s. For example, I, speak, I, um, I refer to my mother, who was Spanish, right? And uh, she knew a bit of English here and there, but we never spoke English at home. Uh, and, of course, I mean, the language we used at home was Spanish, and I can't conceive a woman in a story of mine speaking in English from that time. Nobody spoke in English. Yeah, come, so come, come across as, as the servants yeah. and the well-to-do. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't come so, across as very authentic, would it? If you it had wouldn't, a, I wouldn't feel it's authentic, yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. And as we both know, Humbert, like the Spanish language is, is in decline in Gibraltar. Does that mean that our ability you know, as, as, a, as a community to construct such stories and to preserve such stories, you know, stories about Gibraltarian life in the recent past, is that ability compromised? Is that something that we won't be able to do in 20, 30 years' time? Possibly it may well be. I mean, in the last 15, 20 years, I've noticed many, many young parents and, uh, and even grandparents only talk to the, the children and grandchildren in English, you know, uh, and even in mixtures of, of, of language, you know, things like a naughty kind of thing, which, uh, that sort of thing coming from grandparents. No, the language is going rather towards the monolingual side. I mean, there are precedents for this. Philippines went that way when the Spaniards pulled out and the Americans took over. Um, it's all a question that when you have two languages in a border town like this, uh, one of the two languages always considered superior to the other. And for some reason, we consider everything British mm -hmm. and everything that has a British stamp superior to the Spanish. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, our hostility uh, to, towards Spain, which is, uh, which is ingrained in us, I, I think, you know, though we try to reason it out politically, etc. But I don't know. I, I see it in the street, you know, it, it comes to the, to the surface very, very quickly the minute anything happens, the uh, anti-Spanish feeling. Yeah. Um, and so they shun as well. Or, or literature. They, they, I think they, we confuse what Spanish art is, what Spanish mm -hmm. language is, with its uh, political masters. You know, they're two different things. Yeah, of course, yeah. You cannot reject everything that came out of Spain when Franco was there. You can reject all the political and social side, but the art is art and it's universal. Mm -hmm. Who can reject a Goya or Velázquez or things like that? Also, I think it's, it's a view that tends to, to see Spain as a very homogenous cultures in everyone was pro-Franco, you know, there are currents within Spanish art and each other are, you know, you know, rabidly Republican and anti-totalitarian and all that, I mean, all that's there. Yeah. You, know, you, you could have embraced all that in the 30s and 40s and 50s in Spain, dangerously, but that was a, that was a possibility. And, you know, just... Before the closure of the frontier in 69, there was no doubt that uh, we partook of a lot more uh, Spanish culture than we do now. Yeah. And we had even Spanish newspapers like El Calpense, mm -hmm. El Anunciador, and things like that. And some people who wrote very well in Spanish, like Asaguri and uh, Manolo Mascareñas. And, um, yes, yeah. but all that has died, I think. Yeah, I was amazed to see that the ballot papers for the referendum were in, in English and Spanish. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unthinkable nowadays. No, no, <laughs> that's forgotten. Well, thanks a lot, Hambert. Um, if you're okay with that, we'll now just hear an extract from your short story, Semana de Sorpresas. Right. Uh, Semana de Sorpresas. 
Llevaba semanas mirándome al espejo del cuarto de baño para ver si daba, si debía afeitarme la sombra del bigote que había ido apareciendo sobre el labio superior y los tres o cuatro pelillos que adornaban mi barbilla. Había otros chicos en mi clase que tenían la barba cerrada y se rasuraban ya todas las mañanas. Y aquí estaba yo, como decía mi padre, con una mofa de bigote que parecía el soso de una principianta. ¿Qué hace? ¿Me afeito o no me afeito? Dicen que si te afeita el vello crece más fuerte. Y eso querría decir que tendría un bigote decente más bien antes que tarde. Decidido, Jared Barranco, no merez, no merez mal la perdí. Al ataque, abrí el armarito que estaba encima del lavabo y rebusqué la maquinilla de afeitado de mi padre. Le puse una cuchilla nueva y cogí la brocha y la barrita de jabón. Eché agua caliente en el lavabo y enérgicamente refregué la brocha sobre el jabón hasta conseguir una buena espuma. Luego me la apliqué con cuidado encima del labio superior y en la barbilla. Ahora llegaba el momento de la verdad. Con mucho tiento empecé a rasurarme hasta no dejar rastro de vello. Luego me enjuagué la cara, la sequé y me remiré en el espejo. Parecía otro, más limpio, incluso más niño. No parecía que tenía 15 años y medio. En parte porque no era muy alto, ni muy fuerte, ni muy nada. Los músculos no formaban parte de mi constitución. Solo era un conjunto de huesos y pellejos. Pero bueno, a veces afeitándome se anima la cosa y me logro poblar de bello, mucho bello. Me desabroché la camisa para examinarme el peso. Ni un puto bello todavía. Y eso que mi padre era un verdadero oso. Tenía pelo por todas partes. El pecho, la barriga, era una verdadera manta zamorana. Y si era la espalda, eso era el culo de un gorila. Y aquí estaba su hijo. Más raso que una bola de queso. Bueno, ¿y si...? No sé. ¿Me atrevería? A fin de cuentas, nadie me iba a ver. Ay, ¿qué hago? Bueno, ¿y por qué no? Después de perdido, al río. Venga, Jared, con dos cojones. Con la misma me quité el pantalón y los calzoncillos e inspeccioné el bosquecito de pelo alrededor de mi pisa. La verdad es que no estaba mal. Los pelos, digo, porque el nabo lo hubiera preferido más gordo y más largo, pero bueno, tampoco estaba mal. Cuando se empalmaba era un tronco respetable. En la clase a veces todos habíamos comparado los tamaños y yo sal no salía mal parado. La tenía igual que otro e incluso más impresionante que alguno. Pues todos coincidían en que yo tenía la cabeza de un nacle muy gorda, tipo hongo champiñón. Thanks a lot for that, Hamburg. And you can catch the full story in our bonus episode, which will appear shortly after this one. Uh, thank you all for listening, and thanks to Hamburg for joining me. Thank It's you. Great to have you. And remember, you can buy his books on Amazon. Just search for Hamburg and Anders, and I'll post a link as well when this episode goes up. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.